Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. Honestly, I am very grateful that we are acting today to relieve the stress and anxiety that parents, students, teachers, and communities have been facing. This is not intended to be the final budget. Uh, This is a budget that will keep the government running in the event that we cannot pass a final budget by, by the end of June. I think that we need to fairly and openly negotiate with the governor and with the Democrats. We're almost 50% of this chamber. These nominations are the first indication of how Katie Hobbs intends to lead the state of Arizona. And what we're seeing is that we didn't get a reasonable candidate here. We got an extreme candidate. Pero como podemos ver, el presidente Biden y su administración continúan impulsando políticas que lastiman a nuestras familias. And this morning, I'm joined by two political consultants from different sides of the aisle. We have Republican strategist Paul Benz of High Ground here. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. And Democratic strategist Don Penick-Thacker. Penick or Penich? I've I've heard this both ways. Penich. Hey, there you go. Penich Thacker (laughs) with Agave Strategy. Good morning to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. All right. So I want to begin with a positive story on the political front, which doesn't happen all that often, right? State state lawmakers came together in kind of rare bipartisan fashion this week and lifted the school spending cap for this year, at least, the so-called aggregate expenditure limit. Uh, This averts a massive crisis for K-12 schools. It awards more than a billion dollars in cuts in the final weeks of the year, layoffs, furloughs, whatever else it would have meant. Don, I want to begin with you here since you are a teacher and have been involved in education here for a very long time. I mean, this this, this had to happen, right? Yeah, well, it, <laughs> <laughs> we're glad that it happened. And it even happened a little sooner than many of us yeah. expected. Um, we were chatting earlier that there are rallies and info sessions planned for next week because many of us expected that they were going to push this to the true 11th hour. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that this got done this week is fantastic news. The extremism of the cuts would have been felt statewide in smaller and rural districts, especially because they already operate with a skeleton crew. Mm -hmm. And so when you have to let go people who are in the classroom and taking care of kids, then you probably have to shut down because there's just not enough adults on campus anymore. Um, And in larger and wealthier districts, it would have meant getting rid of, you know, the instructional aides who help special ed kiddos. It would have meant getting rid of people who keep our kids safe, like crossing guards and on and on and on. So huge crisis averted, um, good news. And unfortunately, though, we're going to be having this conversation again (laughs) next year. So there's where I'll send this to you, Paul. I mean, right, th- this is just for this year. We did the same thing last year. This has been around for, I think, 43 years is the number. Um, tell us a little bit about what's next. Sure. Uh, one thing to bear in mind is what we are debating right now was the fact that there was a, mil- a billion dollars that was allocated last year that the school districts would not legally be able to spend unless the legislature voted to over uh, overturn the limit. And it's going to happen again next year because, quite frankly, because of the way that we have grown grown as a state and the way the aggregate expenditure limit was originally set up, we are just up against that limit, especially since they passed Proposition 301, which is the uh, sales tax that also goes to education that used to be exempt and now it's not. And so 
they're really going to have to figure this out. And we need more of a permanent fix to this issue long term because it is quite frankly, it's a political football. These folks are just yeah. allowed to make these big political points about how schools are failing and they never get enough money. But this was the money that was promised even not by these legislators, but by last year's legislature. And yeah. so um, it does lead to a larger funding discussion, but ultimately uh, they averted education doomsday with 21 days, which was quite shocking. <laughs> quite shocking. I mean, so there were some Republican lawmakers, though, who voted no on this. And there was some worry, I think, on the Republican side that they wouldn't be able to get enough people to vote yes to, to waive this. Tell us about the division there. Sure. I mean, what we're looking at is it, it now is very clear who the most hardcore populist, as Bob Rob likes to call them, are within the uh, within the Republican Party here and those that are going to be opposed to a lot of these types of issues and then don't believe the schools should receive any of this money. And it, and it speaks to it's not necessarily a, a real connection between what's actually happening at the schools and the amount of funding schools need to operate correctly. It really comes down to that they've got and they've created this large conflict with public schools and they're trying to let it play out with things like the AEM. Mm. Don, what's your take? You know, <laughs> I have a, a lot of takes on this <laughs> one. <laughs> but something that really just really frustrates me is that the the Republicans who voted no. And one thing that's important to point out is this is not just a simple majority to pass this. It required a supermajority. Mm -hmm. um, and we did surpass that. But the Republicans who voted no all of their speeches were about they want to see this broken school system have greater transparency and accountability. Mm -hmm. There is literally no government function that is more transparent and accountable than our public district schools. You can figure out exactly where every staple was purchased and what it was used on, let alone what teachers are teaching in the classroom, see the curriculum in advance. And so in a time when the Republican legislature has expanded private school vouchers, for instance, which are completely bereft of transparency and accountability. It used to be a very small program. So maybe in the past I could have said, well, it's not accountable, it's not transparent, but we're talking about 10,000 students. Now we're talking about state tax dollars to the tune of $300 million a year going into a completely unaccountable private school voucher program. And so for Republicans to sit there and say they're voting no on the basis of transparency and accountability is just absolute hypocrisy. Paul? It takes a lot of gumption to come out against the public schools like this and just in, in something that it isn't even a, a part of what they were supposed to be dealing with this, again, passed by the previous legislature. It was to make a political point. Yeah. We're seeing this extensive level of this like political grandstanding now and professional outrage. Mm. And we see it. It's being perpetuated by cable news uh, when you talk about things like the so-called you know, critical race theory or wokeness allegedly being taught in our classrooms. Quite frankly, that's not happening in mm. Arizona. And um, we work with a lot of school districts and have to explain to them, no, you have to explain exactly how public your curriculum is, invite people to come in and see these things because, frankly, they're, you're, they're running uphill against these, this national debate that is not happening mm -hmm. in Arizona. And, and maybe it's happening elsewhere. I'm not a professional understanding of what else is happening in other places. But it's not happening here. And schools are struggling because of it because, yeah. you know, a lot of voters – don't have kids in school anymore. In fact, more than 70% of our electorate don't have kids under the age of 18 at their homes anymore. 70% wow. yeah. of likely voters. And wow. so 
you know, they, they've, they, education's experiential. Everyone went to school. Everyone walked uphill in the snow both ways, you know, when they were kids. And in one uh, one room classroom with clapboard, you know, on the side. They all know what education's supposed to be like in their mind. And so they've got these hard opinions about it. But quite frankly, all of these folks need to spend a little bit more time in the actual schools and see what's being taught. So, Don, I want to ask you about that because you were very involved in Red for Ed. And that was a moment when teachers and schools had a lot of broad public support, I think. And I think that's really shifted probably because of the pandemic and because of what Paul's talking about here. Some of these national topics that are big on Fox News and CNN and like that, you know, may or may not be actually happening here. How do you think that's changed the landscape and the discussion and and what it is that schools need to do to communicate how transparent they are, for example? No, it has definitely gotten tougher um, in the pandemic and school closures and the controversies around that are a big part of it. Um, as Paul was saying, the fact that most voters are getting their information about schools from national cable news outlets, which mm-hmm. also don't know what's going on in Arizona. And, and just to clarify, it's not a may or may not. It is not happening happening in Arizona. No Arizona school is teaching CRT or all these other kind of scare tactic stories that you hear on cable news. So, and, and that is something that schools work extremely hard to get the message out, public schools, that, that you can come and see what we're teaching any day of the week. You can come in and walk around during open houses. Public schools are very much in the realm of having to market themselves Mm. because we do have so much, quote unquote, school choice in Arizona. So I think that that's just schools are aware of this. They are trying everything they can to get that message out. Um, But again, schools have to spend their budgets on things like educating students and teachers and curriculum. So they don't have the big PR budget that cable news (laughs) and a lot of these, you know, right wing school choice privatization think tanks have. And so it's a challenge when we just have to keep working on it, keep getting the accurate message out. So, Paul, as this discussion moves forward, it sounds like all of these issues, whether it's transparency, whether it's CRT, whether it's, you know, vouchers, all of this is going to come into play as lawmakers try or maybe or maybe try or maybe don't try to get this on the ballot for voters or to figure out a way to make this spending cap not something we have to deal with every single year. Right. Um, First thing we need to remember is that public education is one of the things that has made America great over the last 200 years. Uh, Access for everyone to receive of a quality public education is what has led to our innovation, our success, and our prominence in the, in the world. And we need to get back to that. Public schools are not our enemies. And we need our leaders to recognize and respect that public inst- education is part of the solution, not part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And they do need to find some sort of solution long term to solve this problem. We cannot be dealing with this every year where schools and these budget folks, they, they're serious. They, the education, as Don mentioned, is very public and very transparent. They have to make a plan for this. Mm-hmm. They can't assume the limits going to be voted on and passed. And so they have to make plans on what would happen if they had a billion dollars cut from their budgets. And so we, we need a long-term solution, at least raise the limit. They've raised the cap in the past so that we don't come up against it as much. Maybe that's a solution. Quite frankly, I think they should get rid of it, but that's a, a, a very difficult debate to have. Yeah, yeah. So before we go to the break, then, I want to ask you both, um, you know, lawmakers did come together to do this. It was a supermajority. This was bipartisan. Does this bode well maybe for anything else in the legislature this session that people, you know, might actually talk to each other, debate, come together and and vote? 
Oof. (laughs) (laughs) Too optimistic. Okay. Let's say that I hope so. I think there are other issues. Public education is just one of a few issues that should and could be bipartisan wins. Mm -hmm. Dealing with the water crisis might be one of them. There's a lot of momentum right now actually around ways to lower the cost of living for regular Arizonans, whether it's through something like a rental tax rebate for renters or different ways to deal with um, you know, uh, women's hygiene products not being taxed. So there are things that Republicans and Democrats should be able to come together on. And the fact that this isn't their ele- re-election year, that they're not quite mm. campaigning yet, maybe <laughs> means that we'll get a little bit of that done. But it's all going to depend on kind of the, the messaging from leadership. Any optimism from you there, Paul? Uh, with a Democratic governor, they're going to have to find right. a, a way to make a bipartisan budget. At the end of the day, uh, it's going to be challenging. That's I, I know we're going to talk about the skinny budget, but ultimately yes. what you know, the governor has a veto pen. They need to recognize that and respect that. And the, the, ultimately, this budget that will come through eventually will have bipartisan support. Some Republicans are going to realize that. The question is how many of them do uh, mm-hmm. to to come around on that. But ultimately, I think we'll see something in, in bipartisan, at least on the budget side. Sure. OK. We are in the midst of our Friday news cap with Don Punich-Thacker of Agave Strategy and Paul Bentz of High Ground. Hello, hello. I want to move on to another legislative story as we begin this section of the the cap here. Senate Republicans created a new committee to vet all of Governor Hobbs' nominees to her cabinet. This is not the way it's usually been done. And it's a move that a lot of folks have said this is, you know, taking a process that should be a given and turned it into another political battleground, essentially. Yesterday they met and sure enough, they rejected or recommended rejecting one of her nominees. Paul, I want to start with you here. Um, what do you make first of this committee and of what GOP Republicans are doing here? Well, it, it's certainly politics, right? I mean, this is what the, the goal here. And, um, you know, longtime conservative columnist Bob Robb said uh, the confirmation process shouldn't be a venue for policy debates, nor should it be a venue for scoring partisan points. Uh, that's not the goal here. And I agree with him on that. They've decided that that they don't agree with that. <laughs> They've decided that this is going to be the the forum for some performative outrage, for some discussion, and and uh, for you know raking these nominees over the coals. And they, you know, yesterday is a great example. Um, multiple hours with the the health person, and I think we're going to see more of that. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're struggling. It's still the early phases here of what it means to be in a split government. Yeah. How, you know, we've had. Republican majorities in both the House and the Senate for a while. It's a one-vote majority for both, but now we have a Democratic governor, and they're still trying to feel each other out on how this is all going to work out. Don, what do you make of this? Like, shouldn't, as Bob Robb said there in that quote, which I read this week and totally um, listened to as well here, I mean, shouldn't Hobbs be able to staff her cabinet the way she wants? Like, isn't that kind of, you know, elections have consequences? Well, sure. And that's what happens. That's what happened with Ducey. That's what has happened every time the legislature and governor have been of the same party. But if you look back to the last time we had this with Governor Napolitano, Mm. her appointees also didn't get confirmed for pretty much the full year that they have to do that process. Process. And so this kind of political gameplay partisanship isn't new, but it, this definitely kicked it up a notch by creating this, you know, this committee led by the most extreme right wing of the Republican Senate um, who see it as their, you know, sworn duty to make sure that no woke appointee finagles their way into these, you know, these departments. What was very evident to me in watching <laughs> those confirmation hearings for many hours yesterday was that this is very much 
in kind of the the marching orders, the on brand for this Republican kind of refusal to let go of the past. Um, in the questioning of Cullen, it was all about how she handled COVID in Pima County in those early months and year of the pandemic mm-hmm. and just drilling in and questioning every recommendations she might have made about masks or curfews or, you know, I mean, at one point they, uh, Senator Champ pressed her on saying that we didn't have treatment early on. We didn't have vaccines and, and antiviral medications. She just jumped down her throat saying, yeah, but what about herbs and exercise and eating healthy? And it's like, wow, we're really sitting here stopping the work of a state over trying to equivocate herbs to vaccines, but that is exactly what they want to do. And this matches with this same um, kind of Republican obsession with not wanting to move past the 2020 elections and who won those. And so to me, it was just this whole kind of Republican ethos that I'm seeing everywhere I look of not wanting to look at the problems that we need to solve today and what we can do for Arizona in the future, but being stuck in two years ago three years ago and not being willing to let that go. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about Teresa Cullen here, who used to lead the, lead the health department in Pima County during the pandemic. Yeah. She's now um, nominated to be the Department of Health Services lead here. And, and this was what happened yesterday at that hearing. Paul, on the other side of this, right, like, uh, we heard that cut from from Senator Hoffman in the intro here about how, you know, this was not a reasonable candidate. This is an extreme candidate. I mean, the lawmakers are allowed to make those calls, right? They are they have to be Senate confirmed to, to, to be on the cabinet, right? Sure. But at the same time, Governor Hobbs won the election. I know they don't necessarily agree with that, but the, the voters of Arizona have spoken that they want – uh, her, they've approved her as the leader of the state, and so that her nominees should have their due day to to lead the way that she sees fit, and then she'll be up for election. And they can decide. This is sort of the uh, turning point USAification mm-hmm. of the of the process here, where we continue to litigate the past. It reminds me of like when you you know sometimes when you fight with somebody and you get in an argument and and you're not winning that argument so you go back to well yeah 3 years ago you did this to me and you, you <laughs> bring back old stuff over and over uh don's exactly right i mean we talk about the election being stolen now we're back to talking about covid every time we appear like we're getting past some of these topics. They continue to drag them back because they don't like how it was settled. They don't like where it went. And they're very unhappy about it. I mean, this the core populist ethos right now is is anger about things. And so they continue to bring it around, uh, whether it's COVID, whether it's the schools, whether it's the election. And, and we're going to see it play out very, very publicly. But at the end of the day, it's Governor Hobbs's prerogative to appoint these folks to uh, the jobs that she sees fit and then let them do their job. And then we'll decide if we like the job she's doing and mm-hmm. see if she wants re-election. That's how it's supposed to work. Let's move on then to another story from the Senate Republicans this week. There attempt to pass a so-called skinny budget failed this week due essentially to one of their most conservative measures members. And it seemed that this was a surprise to everybody, Paul. Did no, no one know this was going to happen? No, she said she was not going to vote yeah. for the budget and she wasn't going to vote for anything until they relitigated the election because she believed the election was stolen. And so it should not be a surprise because back to what we're talking about here, 
these folks say what they mean. <laughs> and, and she clearly uh, said she wasn't going to vote for any of these items until um, they looked at the election. They haven't done that, so she's not going to go forward. Wow. What's interesting, in a one-vote legislature like this, where Republicans have a one-vote majority in both, that's the exceptional power um, that these folks all have now to make their voice heard on issues. On something like the skinny budget, which wasn't going to have a chance of passage anyway because the governor was going to veto it, it's it's less impactful. But I think when we get into the real budget debate, which is going to be in June, by the way, <laughs> we're going to be here a long time. Um, the power of some of these individuals, they're going to realize to get things done that they want done is going to be exceptional. Don, what do you make of this? That Republicans went into the skinny budget sort of saying this is the responsible budget. We will show a united front here. And they couldn't do that. No. And uh, like Paul is saying, I mean, it's kind of nice to see a politician keep a campaign promise, which is exactly <laughs> what Harris has done here. Um, I think it's kind of interesting because that's how bipartisan budgets got passed in the last couple of years is by a couple of Republican holdouts. So but I don't think that we are going to see that with Harris. Harris is not a Paul Boyer. Harris is not, you know, Kate Brophy McGee and Heather Carter, who shares some key values that allowing Democratic priorities through is is going to be acceptable. So this is a, an instance where the enemy of my enemy, I don't think, is necessarily productive. <laughs> and so we'll have to see as the weeks go on and as fractures continue to widen in the Republican caucus, which they will, <laughs> um, we'll start to see who really splits off to make this a bipartisan budget and what those items are going to be. But um, So it was entertaining, not surprising, but I, I don't see Harris being the one who is this legislature's Paul Boyer. All right. Last couple of minutes here. Let's talk about something a little lighter, enough politics for the day. Um, so Phoenix is hosting the Super Bowl this weekend. Things are nuts here. There's traffic everywhere. There's a million people flying in. Uh, but, you know, all eyes are on Arizona for a brief minute here. How do you think we can uh, do well or screw this up, Paul? <laughs> uh, first of all, I think that's part of the reason why the Kevin Durant trade took place. I think that's why yeah. the, uh, other good the new Suns owner was in place by the time this happened. I also think it's quite frankly why the aggregate expenditure limit was passed. Mm. I don't think we wanted all the eyes on Arizona and to show this education doomsday about to take place. So I think that's part of it. Um, you know, the weather's beautiful. It's a great place to be. We've got the open as well going on right now. So, I, I mean, it is it's certainly great for the chambers of commerce and show that Arizona is a desirable place to live. All right. Don, what do you think? Can we can we come across really well here after a couple of days with everybody watching? Oh, I mean, it's a beautiful place and most people are not politicians and so they're lovely <laughs> and <laughs> and the world will get to interact with all the wonderful Arizonans. But it, what entertained me as someone who is not a big football person and not a big golf person is that you really saw that, you know, even all this excitement and the world is watching Arizona and Phoenix because of the Super Bowl and the Open, but everyone that I know is excited about the Suns. So <laughs> I think that's really a testament to how much the hometown team really does matter. That's right. That's, that's a good one. Go Suns and uh, and go Phoenix here with the Super Bowl. That'll do it for our Friday news cap. That is Don Penichthacker of Agave Strategy and Paul Bentz of High Ground. Thanks you both, both for coming in. It was Thank a lot you. of fun. Thank you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.